Well, good evening. It's good to be with you all. My name is John McCombs. I'm looking around. I see a whole lot of friendly faces. I know just about everyone here, but I'm one of the assistant pastors at City Reform. I want to welcome you uh, to our evening service on uh, this uh, Marathon Sunday. You didn't have a hard time getting here tonight, did you? <clears throat> Things worked out just fine. All is really calm in the city of Pittsburgh today. I saw someone tweet this morning. One, I felt really bad for... Dr. Hummus and you, not that I know you were there today, but uh, they said it wouldn't be a marathon in Pittsburgh without thunder and hail. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, that kind of fits for May in Pittsburgh. So, oh man, that had to be rough out there. It's good to be here. It's good to be with you. We started a sermon series last week uh, through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, Pastor Joseph kicked us off uh, with the first 17 verses. And we're going to pick up at verse 17 today and, and work through the end of the first chapter. Uh, our custom at City Reformed is after I read the scripture, uh, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and if you can respond with thanks be to God. So let's hear now the, the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of of the world. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord this is the word of the Lord let's pray together our gracious God in heaven Lord we do thank you now that we have the opportunity to sit under your word uh, Lord might you speak to our hearts might we see Christ high and lifted up might we be changed for having met with you this evening Thank you for the thoughtful presiding. Um, 
uh, and the wonderful song selections that have pointed us uh, to receive this message. Uh, So Lord, prepare our hearts even now and be with us uh, by your grace. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if ever there were an excuse to preach a crude short sermon, this is it, right? I don't need to say one eloquent thing the entire time up here. Not that I'm known for that. And uh, our bulletins actually says scripture and homily. So I think you could probably get away with about 10 minutes for that. Can't you, Pastor Matt? 10 minutes? You can get a homily could be about 10. It might be a little on the shorter side. And, you know, if I came uh, to preach with eloquent wisdom, one, you'd say, wait, who is that guy up there? Who's John's body double? Ah, I didn't know Novak Djokovic could preach too. That's probably what you'd say, something like that, right? All right, let's just get it straight. I'm older than him. So he looks like me, right? I don't look like him. He looks like me, all right? Um, Just because he has $300 million doesn't mean I look like him. Um, uh, So uh, here we are tonight, and uh, we're going to take a look at uh, at this passage and uh, and see what it has to say to us. Um, Let me ask you this question to start. What is wise and what is foolish in America in 2000? 22. What is wise and what is foolish in America in 2022? Here's some follow-up questions for you. Is it wise today in our culture, in our time, to think that our universe came about very quickly through an event beyond human comprehension? Is it foolish to think the triune God of the Bible is the one who did it? Is it wise to think that people evolve from lower organisms through unguided natural processes? Is it foolish to instead think that God created us in his image? Is it wise to think that we can solve the world's greatest problems through the right applications of science and technology and the like? Is it foolish to think our deepest problems are beyond our capability to solve and to instead seek God's face to provide for us what we truly need? There are two very competing views of reality. One is man-centered, and it takes various forms, but in the end... Men are reliant upon their own wisdom as they make their way through life. The other is God-centered, seeking to understand the world as God sees it and trusting him to walk with us in this life. And this is nothing new. This is as old as man. The Apostle Paul, as he wrote to the church in Corinth, dealt with this war of the worldviews, so to speak, and he showed the fledgling Corinthian church where true wisdom could be found. And that true wisdom is found in Christ Jesus, who is our wisdom from God. Throughout our text, we see Paul refuting the ideas of both the Jews and Greeks that stood in opposition to the simple gospel of Christ crucified 
which, call, which Paul was called to proclaim. This word of the cross, as Paul calls it in verse 18, was folly to many in Paul's day. Not just Greeks, not just Jews. He's writing to the church. It seems like many in this cosmopolitan city of Corinth had uh, imbibed uh, the ideas of those around him or perhaps had uh, had not reconsidered them in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes, and he tells them about this word of the cross. He tells them because they needed to hear it. He tells them because they sought words of eloquent wisdom, as we learn in verse 17. It seems they were caught up in the rhetorical fever of the day, wanting to hear only the opinions of the most educated Greek sophists on important philosophical matters. Uh, The best scribes, our text tells us about scribes, the famous debaters of their age. Yet all their collective wisdom failed to even explain life's most significant issues, let alone solve them. We read in verse 21 that the world did not know God through its wisdom. That's a big problem, is it not? The world not knowing God through its wisdom. And Paul is urging the Corinthian church to consider this more than just a trivial matter. These are more than matters of preference or mere opinion that you can take or leave as you see fit with little to no impact on your lives. Paul saw them as life and death matters. And so should we. What we believe is wisdom and what we believe is folly It has consequences, sometimes even eternal ones. And that's what Paul's trying to press right here. Look at verse 18. For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. People are perishing, and people are being saved. There's no third way. There's no middle road we so often look for. Now granted, by God's grace, those who one day are perishing could one day be being saved. Um, And we as uh, um, uh, proper uh, uh, believers in uh, the perseverance of the saints wouldn't say it works the other way, right? Those who are being saved will never be perishing, spiritually speaking. But there's no third way. There's no middle road. How people respond to this word of the cross reveals not only their outlook on life, but more significantly, their destiny after life. Unless, of course, God intervenes by his grace. The cross of Christ that we see in verse 17 is what men must ultimately deal with. And we're told that that cross has power. It has power to deal with the issues of life. It has power to explain the issues of life. It has power to overcome the issues of life. 
even the most significant issues of life. You see, the ultimate display of true wisdom is to be found in the cross of Christ. The work of Christ on the cross is the only thing that can truly give life. It's the only thing that can truly change lives. It is what we need more than and before anything else in this life. And it's what we need every day of this life. We need the cross of Christ. We need Christ himself. What's the point of solving many of life's smaller issues with death still looming large over our heads? Will winning a few battles along the way make a difference if in the end you lose the war? But this idea, right, this idea of a crucified Savior, it was offensive to many in Paul's day. Look with me at verses 22 and 23. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The Jews of Paul's day were a concrete people. Uh, They wanted proof. They demanded signs. Perhaps a few instances of their teachers demanding signs from Jesus himself come to mind. Certainly a crucified Messiah could not be the sign they were looking for. After all, according to Old Testament law, anyone who was hanged upon a tree was cursed. In their eyes, Jesus had been defeated. He could not be their Messiah. In a resurrection in the middle of history, They couldn't conceive of that. Resurrection, yes. But at the end of history, on the day of the Lord, when all things are brought to completion, but not in between, or so they thought. So Christ was a stumbling block to the Jews, and they continued to wait for another Messiah. What about the Greeks? The Greek thinkers, right? The Romans, really, at this point, Um, but thinking and building upon the shoulders of the Greeks who had come before them. Well, to them, this was sheer folly. First off, in polite Roman society, you didn't even whisper the word crucifixion. It was just that gruesome. It was just that despised. Roman citizens had a right to not be crucified. They could not be put to death that way. So why would anyone seek to follow someone who died such a horrific, shameful death, nailed naked to a cross? And why would that someone ever want to come back to life after death, at least in a physical body? I mean, resurrection to the Greek mind in the first century? Come on, you got to be kidding me, right? 
The idea was laughable to them. Every educated Roman knew that the material world, including our bodies, was evil. And that the spiritual world was good. This was the leading theory of the day, and they viewed it as irrefutable. It wasn't to be questioned. This is where 400 or so years of thinking about this issue, apart from the God of the Bible and his teachings, had unfortunately gotten them. And as is often the case, it, it doesn't get everything wrong. It did understand that we're constituent parts. It did understand we have bodies and souls. But in the Greek mind, however, after our good souls have finally been set free from our evil bodies of flesh, why would we ever want to enter back into our earthly bodies and live in them again? They had been set free from the prison. It's like a bird let out of the cage. Why would the bird ever want to go out of the cage, right? Twitter was set free from the cage. Did you see that little meme? Like, why would Twitter ever want to go back in the cage, right? That was a pretty clever one, right? With, yeah. <clears throat> not me clever. That was clever. I'm not, not very clever. Um, it was simply preposterous, right? This was folly on the highest order to them. Or so they thought. Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah in, in verse 19 here when he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In the cross of Christ, truly, God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. In Paul's day and in our own, the Jews didn't like it. Neither did the Greeks and neither did we. Or neither, neither do we, at least not a significant number of us. We don't often look at that naturally in our society as a symbol of victory. That still is Nike to us, isn't it? Right? The Greek god of victory is Nike. And he doesn't want to go down without a fight. Now, we know... She, right, goddess, Greek goddess of victory. Did I hear someone say she? Thank you there, good. Um, it was a goddess. Uh, the Greek goddess of victory, uh, Nike, uh, doesn't want to go down without a fight. She's refusing to be taken off of her throne, but we know that the cross is the true symbol of victory. And let's just pause and think about that for a moment for those of you who see it as that. In the first century mindset, it was a bloody Shameful symbol of death. And we look at it, praise the Lord, and say, Hallelujah. <laughs> he is risen. That is our victory. His resurrection is our resurrection. But we say that because God has worked and moved in our hearts and our minds to believe these things by faith. Just as we read in verses 26 through 29 that in the church at Corinth, not many were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were royalty. So it is in our day. Not many in our churches were the wisest in the world's eyes before coming to Christ. Not many were rich. Not many were famous. Some, yes. Paul doesn't say not any. He says not many. Not many. 
Man-centered wisdom with its innovations and ideas that are opposed to God virtually guarantees this. And only the grace of God in Christ Jesus overcomes this. No matter what level of wisdom we had before coming to Christ, no matter how much or how little power or prestige we possessed, it was only the grace of God in Christ Jesus that gave us new hearts and opened our eyes to see the truth of Christ crucified, that we needed him above anything else. See, as Paul says here, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Folks, that's us. We're the foolish. We're the weak. We're low. We're increasingly despised. And that's why Paul says in verse 24 that to those of us who are, who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Dear friend, your only hope in this life, your best hope in this life is the foolishness of God. <laughs> it's not your own wisdom. It's his foolishness. It's the folly of the cross. As we read in verse 25, even the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And this leaves no room for human boasting, as Paul makes clear in verse 29. Our only boast, according to verse 31, should be in the Lord. Our boast should be in him because our life is in him. Let's close out by looking at verses 30 and 31 together. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Folks, it is because of God that we are in Christ Jesus. This is not our own doing. It is his sheer grace. Christ came that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly. Christ became to us wisdom from God. Christ's life is what we truly need above all else. He is the answer to our deepest problems. Christ brings us back into fellowship with God. And that's what we need. Christ is our righteousness, our text tells us. That is, he is the reason God the Father can declare us righteous in his sight. We are justified in him. It is Christ's sinless life that is credited to our account when we, by faith, place our trust in him alone for salvation. Christ is our sanctification, the text tells us. That is, he transforms us into what he declared us to be. God, through his word and the power of his spirit at work within us, is conforming us more and more into Christ's likeness. One day, too, on the other side of glory, 
we will be perfectly righteous. And Christ is our redemption. That is, he died the death that we deserve, taking away all of our sins once for all. Christ's sinless life, his sacrificial death, his bodily resurrection applied by the Holy Spirit to men and women like you and me. This is true wisdom. This is true wisdom from God our Father. Christ crucified, the power and wisdom of God, our only hope. Let's pray.